I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a tapping practitioner and trainer, a trauma specialist and anti-racism and anti-oppression educator, a writer, a meditation teacher, and a proudly anti-Zionist Jewish woman. Being a white woman in this space requires constant self-reflection and learning and unlearning. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of people doing work in all aspects of anti-racism and anti-oppression, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topics ranging from healthcare to spirituality to politics and beyond, in order to provide a nuanced educational and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Welcome. I am so excited to speak with Fatima Gilliam Esquire today. Uh, she holds a law degree from Columbia Law School and a master in public policy from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and an undergraduate degree from Wellesley College. She's been previously featured in high, great, in high profile media, including CNBC's Power Lunch, NPR's The Brian Lehrer Show, Insider, and Yahoo Finance. Gilliam is the founder and CEO of the Azara Group, which provides diversity and inclusion, leadership development, negotiation, and strategy consulting services to Fortune 500 corporations, senior executives of billion dollar businesses, and industry thought leaders. Gilliam is a Black woman whose family has been in the United States for nearly 400 years and fought in every American war, including the American Revolution and Civil War. She's a volunteer attorney for election protection and previously monitored vote counting in Florida. So, Fatima, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I feel like that that intro is like the tip of the iceberg in terms of all the wonderful things that we are um, going to get to talk about today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you and your listeners. So I'd love to start. Um, I want to start, if, if if it's okay with you, to just hearing about your, you've, you've got this very interesting, unique family, family background, um, and story around that. So I'd love it if, if, if you're open to sharing some of that and, and how that got you to where you are now. Well, um, you know, I'm, I live on the East coast. I grew up in California. I'm a third generation Californian. And, uh, my family as as you said, has been in the United States for nearly 400 years. Um, and if people were to see what I look like, a lot of times I'm mistaken for being white or some, and then sometimes people think, oh, well, maybe one of my parents is white. Nope. Both of my parents are black. Or then maybe one of my grandparents is white. Nope. All four grandparents are black. So I'm light-skinned because of American history and, you know, slave masters, un- you know, coming to slave quarters uninvited, uh, making you lighter over time. But um, yeah, my family has been here for you know, I can't claim any other place. And I'm, I feel very patriotic and very American. And although my definition of patriotism is, is not the same as most people, most people might think that means I have to wave a flag. And whereas me, I think my patriotism is in the form of wanting to push society to be even better. And one of the reasons why I wrote my, my book, Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You is because of my patriotism. I love that. I love that because I feel like patriotism has been co-opted as has like the flag and a bunch of things to, to, to stand for something that only certain people believe in. Uh, and I love, I love that you're 
I don't know if reclaiming is the right word, but, but I feel like that's what patriotism should be is, is the way you're connecting to it. To me, patriotism is whether or not you're actively upholding the principles in the U S constitution and where, you know, sometimes it's not always, it doesn't always play out that way in terms of laws or, or how things are implemented in society, but the ideals of what the U.S. Constitution stands for in terms of freedom and democracy and equality, that is what I believe is what it means to be an American, is to uphold, <clears throat> excuse me, uphold those things. Um, I, 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 love, I love that so much. I feel like our country actually has the capacity to be so great, theoretically, even though its foundation is based in so much rot and like, and that's why there's people like you doing the work you do. Um, how, so you pass as white. No, I won't say I pass. Oh, okay. Oh, so, so no, 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 no. Let me say this to, to, to clarify. So if someone is passing, then that means that they're putting themselves out there as not being black. Like they have made a choice and they're okay. proactively passing. Okay. So that would be like, uh, um, you know, I, I can't think of someone off the top of my head, but there've been like a series of, you know, actors and actresses over the years that have done that. Whereas what happens with me is people mistake okay. that I'm, that I'm a person of color sometimes. So I might be like, I present for some people, that I look like I'm I'm white. But if I saw myself and I weren't related to myself, I'd be like, oh yeah, she's one of us. Yeah. <laughs> so I really appreciate you kind of clarifying that for me. And it's funny on the, um, some of the, you know, information I have about you, it says passes, but it has it in quotes. And so now I understand more why it's in quotes and um, how that's different from how that, because I don't think I actually understood that. Um, that interpret, I don't want to say interpretation, but, but, but what that actually means. So, um, how, how has that, because people may, may think that you're white when they look at you, how has that impacted your, you talk about this a lot in the book, which I is so good. Um, and I'm can't wait to, to get deeper into it, but how has that impacted your lived experience and also why you chose to write the book? Well, in how being, you know, a light-skinned Black woman impacts my, you know, how I float through life and how I interact with people is in a couple of different ways. Like my, how I see myself, how I experience myself, how I think about myself is first and foremost as a Black American woman. Um, but that doesn't mean everyone else sees that. So what ends up happening is sometimes people know, sometimes people don't know. Um, and then when people don't know, they want, and I say people, I'm referring to white people, they get comfortable and in getting comfortable, they get very offensive. You know, sometimes they'll say the N word. Sometimes they'll say terrible things about people of color because they think that they're just by themselves. Mm -hmm. The other way that it also presents itself is that people will know, cause I've said it or, or, you know, for some people, even if if they're white and I don't declare myself as a black woman, they'll still look at me and they'll be like, okay, she isn't, uh, isn't white. Or if, if I haven't gotten my hair done and my hair's all curly, then that's like the giveaway. But, um, but then, 
when they know, sometimes people still get comfortable and they'll get comfortable because I went to Wellesley and I went to Harvard and I went to Columbia and I worked at a white shoe Wall Street law firm and for Citigroup and the United Nations, right? So I have all the, the trappings of like the, the wonderful resume. And so that doesn't fit into the box of how some people think uh, what black achievement looks like. And so then I still hear some terrible comments. Um, so that's how it's how it's impacted me. In terms of your question about you know the book, I'll tell you the origin story for the book. So I was watching the news one night, and it was another story of a Karen going viral for calling the police for no reason. This was uh, five years ago in 2018, and as I was watching this newscast, I started thinking about my lived experiences. I started thinking about the things that white people say around me when they don't realize I'm black. I thought about my diversity consulting work. I thought about the repetitive questions that people ask me personally and professionally. And as I watched that news story, I thought, aha, white people need a manual. Mm. I'm going to write that manual for them. And so my book, Race Rules, is really a how to guide on how to make more equitable, less offensive decisions. So when you think about other books on race, which are great, you know, they tend to be very autobiographical. I only show up in the introduction. Um, they may talk about what racism is, how it shows up in society. They may include some history and that could be very illuminating for the reader to understand what racism is and how it manifests in society. And then what? What happens after that? So I'm at the advice game, like that as an attorney, as a consultant, I give people advice. So I'm focused on the what to do, the how to. And so uh, that, you know, I have, it's written in a sort of choose your own race knowledge adventure. You want to understand tokenism, hop there. The N word, voting rights, uh, taking a knee, um, microaggressions, you know, pick and choose the topic. Uh, and then, you know, I have reflective questions, translation charts, illustrations, right? I'm just trying to meet people where they are. And, and I write for what I call the lazy reader because I myself am a lazy reader. I like to skim, you know, I don't want to be committed to a chapter that's too long, you know, and that's the style that I've written the book in. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, the setup of it is like, different sections and it's like this chapter will talk about this and this one will talk about this and so people really can say like oh that's something I don't know about or or oh I think you know I think I already know about all that I'll skip it but then of course they really should still read it because no one knows everything they need to know no one else true and I'll say one thing about that too like uh, in terms of when somebody says oh I think I already know this right so it's interesting as I've been putting this book out into the world and talking to people about it. I know, you know, there are plenty of times where the reaction is, oh, I know someone who could use that book. And I, and I think, great. And you, you know what I mean? <laughs> and cause it doesn't matter where someone is on like the wokeness spectrum, there's something to be learned. I mean, there are plenty of friends and colleagues that read chapters of my book when I was in the writing phase and you know, who consider themselves to be strong allies that will vote for the quote unquote right things. And, and the feedback that they provided, they're like, wow, I didn't realize I was doing this thing, you know, repeatedly that was problematic. So like what I'm trying to do is 
you know, you can have a white person and a black person and they'll have an encounter and they'll walk away with two different views of how that encounter went down. And the white person might think, oh, that was okay. Or maybe there was a misunderstanding. And then the person of color could be like, I can't stand that person. That They're terrible. I can't believe I have to see them in the next meeting or my friend's wedding or whatever. And I'm trying to lift the veil on that. Like, that's why it's the quiet part out loud. So that's what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's direct, which is so needed. Um, it's, as you were saying, like, or people were like, oh, I have someone that I, that I recommend this for one of the, one of the things that Maisha and I always talk about is my, my business partner is like, stop pointing the finger outside because it, it, it has to start within, uh, it always has to start within, but I, I'm just thinking about paternalism and how like, we love, we as, we as white supremacy culture love paternalism. And so it's going to be really great for us to go tell someone that there's a book that they should read. That's going to make them right. Make them better. Cause of course, like that's what we're going to do. Um, I mean, I even talk about that when I talk about exceptionalism and, mm-hmm. and in the first, cause the book is divided into seven parts. And the first part is entitled like stop othering who's racist. And what I mean by that is not othering like marginalization. I mean, othering in terms of it's all the other people who are the problem, as opposed to like, what are you doing on a daily basis that is causing harm, that is upholding white supremacy that upholds and supports the status quo. And, you know, and so I'm, I'm focused on like, you know, the everyday person that walks their dog past your house that sleeps in the bed next to you. That is you when you look in the mirror, like that's who I'm focused on. Not this view that the, that a racist can only be the person who shows up at the supermarket with an AR 15 to shoot all the Brown people that they see. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think that can be stated strongly enough. Honestly, I mean, it's, it's, it's so important. How how do you like, how do you, I don't want to say when you, when you go against this, but maybe that is the right term. When you come across a white person who's like, I'm, I don't, I don't need this because I've been doing this, 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 and that and the other, or like, you know, I have a black husband or I had a black friend in elementary school or whatever. Do you how do you decide whether or not to engage with them? And if you do engage with them, what do you find yourself likely to be saying to them? I think it depends on how invested am I in that relationship? Sure. Like if I'm not that invested, maybe I'll say something, maybe I won't. Or if I say something, will I decide to be diplomatic in how I say it? Or will I decide to be blunt? I mean, when people say, oh, you know, my best friend is black or whatever. And I'll be like, there's a chapter on tokenism waiting for you. You know what I mean? Here's a copy. Actually, no, they should buy your book, but. <laughs> because it is tokenism, right? Or, or you know, and, and I talk about that, like proximity to blackness does not mean that you can't engage in racist actions, beliefs, uh, outcomes, right? And then I also talk about how it's not about the intention of what someone is doing, right? I want people to move away from this like hearts and mind ideology that it's, oh, what I'm thinking, like that is what's ma- what matters. Okay, yeah, that's important. But to me, what is more important is like, what is the actual impact of the decisions, 
and behaviors and choices that you're engaged in on a daily basis. If the impact is harmful to people of color individually or collectively, then you're engaged in racism. Yeah. I love how you say, like, do these things, even if you don't agree with them yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, just trust me, <laughs> this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like get there on your own, ter- get, get there on your own terms. But for the meantime, just don't do those things or do these things because that's, what's the right thing to do. How, how is it, how has that um, been received for you? I mean, I think people need guardrails. Like there people come at different points. Some people want to know, okay, I shouldn't do this because it's offensive or it's harmful. So please let me know what I shouldn't do and, um, and why, and they may care about the why. And then you have other people who are like, I don't really care about the why. I just don't want to go viral and blow up my life. Right. So there are those people, maybe they don't care about, um, why they're, you know, what the impact is, they just don't want to do anything that's going to harm them. And then you have the people who are like in between and they just don't want to harm other people. And so they need some guidance. So I think at the end of the day, what people need are guardrails, right? They need some form of like racial etiquette. And that is what I'm trying to provide them with. And I'm also trying to methodically move them towards action, Right. So it's not like I'm saying this is bad. Don't do this. I'm like, this is bad. Don't do this. And if you don't do it, you know, you're on the wrong side and the wrong side is the racist side. <laughs> right. It's like, I know you think you aren't, I mean, I, cause I'm be the first to say I'm, I'm part of the problem. Like, and I, and I can give many, many examples of how I've done that in the past and how I like, you know, still doing that, even though I am trying not to at this point, but, but we all make mistakes. Yeah. Like I'm not perfect. You know, like I may, I'm, I may say something uh, that I'm trying not to, but maybe I end up offending someone who's, um, you know, Native American and and not that I'm doing it intentionally, right? Like I stopped doing this because I've learned that it's offensive, but I actively try to not say something like, oh, that, you know, that, that person's low on the totem pole. Okay. Well, people find saying that or let's, we're going to have a meeting. Let's get together on powwow. Okay. People say that all the time. That's offensive. Yeah. You know, so I make these mistakes and I've learned that I shouldn't be doing that. And so I try to be more thoughtful and intentional about the choices that I'm making that impact people outside of, of, of being my own people, which is black people. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and I think it's kind of always for me, nice to, to hear people who are in part of marginalized identity saying, I, you know, I make mistakes too. We're all human. And then like, what do we do with that knowledge kind of moving forward? Um, and I think that most, most white people are going to say I'm, they're not racist and they, many of them actually don't want to be, um, when I, my real introduction to this work was someone, uh, of the, on this, on the, on the, we were on the outs friend of mine was like, Hey, this blog post you just put out is really privileged. And I was like, what is she talking about? I'm not racist. But like, ultimately I was like, well, I don't want to be that. I didn't know what the word I'd lived it, but I didn't know what the word itself meant and the term meant. And so that prompted a huge investigation for me, a lot of internal work, because, you know, part one of your, part one of your, uh, rules, I think, um, the, 
is is doing the work, you know, like reading and learning and 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 trying to figure stuff out. Um, so I think it's wonderful to have people who are like, no, <laughs> this is what this is what you need, and I think it's so helpful. Um, and what I will say too, in terms of like, you know, nobody wants to be called any kind of ist, right? Like you don't want to be racist, sexist, or some, you know, like or homophobic, transphobic. Like nobody wants to be tagged with those kinds of terms. Um, and sometimes, you know, people can't avoid having certain beliefs ingrained, right? So it's it's a journey and a process and a lifelong process, right? So it's not like you could do the work and stop and then you're you're good for life. Like you have to routinely um, challenge yourself and things evolve, right? Like queer, okay? When I was growing up, queer was offensive. Now the term queer is okay, right? So things evolve over time and as they evolve, then it's like, we have to evolve with it so that yeah. we're not, you know, like a stick in the mud. The one thing that I'll, will say too, that is somewhat of a difficult pill for some people to swallow or people might see as somewhat controversial about my book is effectively, you know, I, I'm saying maybe not so directly, but you know, I'm saying that I believe every white person is racist, just period. Mm -hmm. Now people are on a, the spectrum, right? So like there's the extreme form of like white nationalism or or people showing up at a unite the right rally and and those people are like extreme and then there are like the people who are allies that voted for obama and are democrats and maybe liberals and progressives and they too may engage in problematic behavior and so what i try to say to people because when you know i say that and then you know like i was talking to my friend and she was asking me about my book and she's like so do you believe every white person is racist. And I said, yes. And then I was like, and to clarify, cause you're probably now thinking, I was like, that includes you too. And so, cause I can't make a statement like that and then not mean you like, you know, and, but my point is, is it's impossible not to be on some level, right? So like the fish in the ocean, does the fish notice the water that it's swimming through that's vital to its existence, right? That is enabling them to thrive and survive in that environment. The only way for them to not have to breathe in that water is to somehow evolve, right? And it's the same for society, right? As we walk through society and move through society, the racism is like the water that is surrounding us that we're breathing in every day. So it becomes impossible, no matter how hard you try, you turn on the television, you look at your phone, you pick up a book, you watch a movie, it's, it's impossible to 100% escape. So then it's like, we have to engage in practices to minimize how many of these big gulps do we take down? Yeah, I love that. And it's so true. It's, it's so, so true. And, and I think for white people listening <laughs> it can be helpful to understand. It's not a personal attack necessarily. It can be. <laughs> if someone's intentionally saying something to cause harm, just, you know, saying or doing something to cause harm. But like, I'm racist. I mean, I would never, in my earlier lives, I was the like, you know, well-intending white liberal that is, you know, a hugely part of the problem. But right, I, and I got a whole chapter on white liberals, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, we're horrible and can be horrible. <laughs> certainly, you know, certainly in, you know, positive aspects of, of, of people too. And also like racially, um, can be super problematic, but if we just like acknowledge coming out of the gates, we're all racist. 
then it doesn't have to be an am I, aren't I? It's just like, okay, what can I learn? <laughs> and analyze like what's happening around you. Like for example, a friend of mine that I was visiting, um, you know, for dinner and I was going to like park in front of her house and we're going to have like a barbecue and just hang out. She was like, oh, you know, you should park in my driveway in case, you know, we end up hanging out really late. And I was like, oh, okay. And then her husband was like, yeah, because you're not allowed to be on our street on the, on the, you know, after like 2 a.m. And I was like, interesting. Right. And so when they said that, I was like, oh, I understand what that's about. And then they were like, what do you mean? I was like, clearly, you know, your town doesn't want undesirables, however you define undesirables, mm -hmm. parking and, and not being tethered to some specific house, which is why people have to be in a driveway after two o'clock in the morning. Mm. And that's about not wanting to have certain kinds of people. Right. Right. So these are people who are liberals, Democrats, you know, and maybe never thought about like why they have this ordinance. Yeah, that's so insightful. And, and you know, so I want to say like lucky for them to have you as a friend. That's probably the wrong word, but how wonderful that they have, that you have a relationship with them, that you feel safe saying that kind of thing, you know, bringing that up to them and that they can learn from you um, when you feel like, when you feel like you want to be in that role. Um, can you talk a little bit about white welfare? Cause I feel like that's something really important that should be discussed. A new term that I've invented. Yeah. You, as you saw in the book, there are plenty of terms that I've, I've coined, you know, white welfare, um, which I say is like America's ultimate entitlement program, right. Mm -hmm. That enables whites to have limitless, you know, a mental state of feeling entitled to limitless winning that impacts opportunity hoarding, access to capital, wealth generation, um, and is tied to America's original sin of Indian extermination and uh, African enslavement. But it is how uh, there are these divergent racial wealth gaps and opportunity gaps, and, and it's linked to white supremacy and white privilege. How do you, how do you recognize it? Like how, how, how will you rec recommend that people, or is it one of those things that's just like also the air we breathe? Like, it sounds like it's so. I think it's part of the, I think it's part of the air that we breathe, but I think it's important for people to understand that it exists because if you don't see it, you don't understand it, you don't recognize it, then you can't dismantle it. You can't disrupt it. Yeah. And so I think it's important for people to think about how they got the things that they have in their life. It's not just like, ooh, your own American dream, hard grit, got it all by yourself. Mm -hmm. And so in the chapter on white welfare, I tried to break that down, right? So there are plenty of people who say, well, my family came here with just like, you know, a dollar in their pocket or the clothes on their back, or my family didn't own slaves, or we just got here 20 years ago or five minutes ago, right? And then I say, okay, that's great, but you follow the yellow brick road to opportunity. And all the opportunity that attracted you here was built on what, right? And not just African enslavement and, and Native American and indigenous extermination, but what flowed from that, right? The Homestead Act, the GI Bill, the New Deal, you know, even the bailouts, the COVID policies, all of these things that have happened has enabled there to be a system where pre predominantly white people 
people are going to thrive uh, in comparison to people of color. And even when people respond and say, well, I grew up poor, like as a white person, we didn't have much money. I experienced hardship. Okay. That's, you know, but my point is, is being white doesn't mean you're never going to have hard times. It doesn't mean that you're not going to experience adversity. The difference is the hard times and the adversity is not because the person is white. It could be because of classism or a whole bunch of other things, but not intrinsically linked to being white. How do you differentiate white welfare from white privilege? I think it's, I mean, they, they overlap, right? Um, that they feed into each other and that with white welfare, I think the difference is what I'm trying to show and explain with white welfare, separate of privilege, is that it really gets to the heart of like economic wealth and success. Mm. So yes, you can say that someone has privilege and that's led to their uh, to their overall success with opportunity. But what I'm trying to explain with white welfare is it's like a grifting, mm. right? It's a it's an entitlement program, just like when people think of some sort of entitlement benefit that they're getting like food stamps or something from the government, right? That it is a policy. I mean, it's how privilege is playing out in policies and opportunity that enables people to have the wealth that they have, whether, and they don't have to be like, you know, Bill Gates rich. It could just be that, you know, they could still be a working class person, but their chance of getting a mortgage, even as a working class person. Yeah even with the worst credit rating than a person of color is still greater. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that really makes a lot of sense. And they, I, I can really see how white welfare takes elements of white privilege and, and like, it's more visible. I think when you think about the systemic and financial aspects of it, like it's, I think it's easier to kind of recognize it. Um, and, it, and I'll say this too, like when people think of privilege, they're like, yes, I, I have privilege, I experience privilege, but with, but when you think of it as an entitlement, mm, right. And yeah. that entitlement yeah. is linked to being white. That entitlement enables you to have wealth, intergenerational wealth to pass on and not just intergenerational wealth, but like the intergenerational mental ease that people are able to have. Because it's not just that you, when there's white supremacy and racism, that it means that you're not gonna be able to have uh, um, opportunities, but it also starts impacting like how you get weathered by society, you know? And what does that mean for your success? And what does that mean for your life expectancy, right? They're very interchangeable. So I want people to start thinking more about white welfare when they think about privilege so that they see, okay, this is about how I have the house that I actually live in. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for, for clarifying that even more. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit. I, you had offered to do, um, to read a little bit from your book, which is yes. a first on the conscious anti-racism podcast. So I'm so excited about that. Um, and I'd love it if you, if you could maybe give a little bit of context to the part that you want to read. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to be the first one to read. 
Um, and, and I'll say this is like one of the, my favorite passages from the book. I mean, there are parts that took weeks and weeks to write, but this one, like this section, I'm going to read you, like I banged it out in like an hour, hour and a half. So that this is in my rule. It's race rule number 22, where the rule is it's not personal when people of color don't want to discuss race. Mm -hmm. And so in this chapter, I talk about why that might be the case that people of color don't want to have these conversations how someone might not, you know, necessarily be a friend that you're approaching to ask these questions or to discuss this topic and how it's very personal. And then I also have reflective questions. So for people to start seeing and understanding why a person of color just may not want to have a particular conversation. And at the end of this chapter, I conclude with the analogy that I'm about to read to you. And just remember that the you in my writing is a white person when I say you. So what it's like talking to you about race. Let's put this in perspective. Recall life, living in the pandemic. Do you remember that haunting feeling you felt that never went away, that the virus was lurking at every corner? You couldn't escape it because there were reminders everywhere, on the news, online, in social media, and when you saw your neighbors or people on the street. You felt a sense of omnipresence as you walked around, always on high alert, looking at others, seeing if they wore masks, looked ill or coughed. You noticed them and observed how they reacted to you. You were in constant fear of your death. Loved ones may die or did die, and you felt perpetual anxiety. Your mental health was impacted along with your physical health from the stress. You had trouble sleeping. You weren't even safe in your own home because the virus could come to your door. You didn't know if you could trust the government or if officials had your best interest at heart, unsure if they would do something to kill you. You felt powerless, as if there were nothing you could do to change things, to make your life better since you weren't in control. You had to resign yourself to your circumstance, but you didn't want to accept your reality. You wanted to resist and somehow make things better. When you tried, you didn't succeed. That's what it's like living under racism every day, 24-7, 365. Racism is a pervasive, invisible force, just like COVID. There's no escape. It's constant, never a break or reprieve. It's isolating and marginalizing. It attacks your life, bank account, livelihood, housing, healthcare, schools, and dinner table, and separates your family. You want the government to do something about it, but politicians want you to laissez-faire your way to non-solutions, absolving themselves of responsibility, willfully blind to its impact. You suck it up. You deal with big picture systemic issues. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Heal yourself. Pave your destiny. Avoid your own death or murder. Welcome to living like a black or brown person in America. But with racism, there's no vaccine coming. No magic pill to inoculate society. This is what it's been like since the 1500s. It isn't getting better. There are new strains, new waves, and invisible resurgences, mutating, reinventing itself, seemingly dormant, but always there stalking, ready to strike and viciously kill. This is the reality. It's bleak. When you want to discuss racism, sometimes people of color only want to discuss it with those who understand what they've gone through not white folks who will trivialize things, which is akin to speaking to an anti-masker who berates innocent and defenseless store clerks. That's you questioning racism and their experiences. You're the anti-masker, 
anti-vaxxer in the conversation. When you come with covert microaggressions, overt aggression, a lack of knowledge, and a rejection of facts. Now, can you understand why no one wants to talk to you? They're already too busy trying to literally survive. That's my excerpt. Oh, that's good. You know, you had mentioned it was three minutes and I was like, okay, we're in the first 30 seconds. And I just look, it's been three minutes. That was really powerful. That was really, really powerful. Um, and such a, such a great metaphor. When did that, how did that formulate in your brain or when did that formulate in your brain? You know, I, I you know, I was just working on my, on that chapter um, of what it's like to, ex you know, of not wanting to discuss race. And then I thought like, well, what way can I help the reader understand what people of color feel like every single day? And we have this perfect ex global experience that everybody went through. Now, granted, some people don't believe COVID is a real thing. I can't really help those folks, but for the ones that believe it's legitimate and, and that uh, those were elements that people died from, uh, and were in fear of dying, I wanted to explain this to them and to remind them as we get years away from being in the thick and the, the peak of the COVID pandemic, for them to remember like, yes, that's what I felt like. It was terrible. And then for them to realize, yes, and that is what people of color experience daily, like from infancy to the moment they're cremated or put in the grave. Like, so there is no break. Everyone is like, okay, COVID's in the past. Maybe I'll get my booster. Okay, well, where's my booster for racism? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, hearing you say you're the anti-masker, you're the anti-vaxxer. I mean, that's no joke. That's, that's that hits. And I think that's such a powerful um, metaphor, analogy. I never know the right word, but- Both. Yeah, <laughs> uh, both and. Um, so thanks for sharing that. And, and I think that, um, for me as a white person, realizing that I'm the dangerous one was a, was a, it's, it's something that like continues to come to me in, in pieces to really understand the impact of that. But that's like a huge aha moment because we're, we're taught to believe that like the other is scary and the other is dangerous when really we're the ones causing harm, uh, and people of color are tired. You know what I mean? Like, you know, this chapter, I follow up with the next one about the importance of like needing to self-educate and each chapter, you know, will have an illustration at the beginning. And then I also have quotes from different people. And though that the next chapter has a quote from Issa Rae, hopefully I won't misstate it, but she says something like, I hope you do the research before you come to me because I'm exhausted. Right. And so like to the point when people want to discuss race or they want to have these conversations, it's like, did you do your due, due diligence before you rolled up on somebody with 50 million questions? And then did you even get their consent to have a conversation? And like, are you even friends? Right. Like, are you just ambushing your hairdresser? Are you ambushing, you know, your gardener, your nanny, you know, the bus driver that takes your kid to school? Like, who are you trying to have these conversations with that are so remote and, and tangent, you know, they're like, they're not even friends. And even the, for the person who might be like your in-law, they're tired too. <laughs> um, I feel like we need to wrap up because the time is ending and I feel, 
I feel like we're just getting started. Um, and this book is incredible. And I highly recommend to everybody to check it out. It's called Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You. And this is available starting in January. What's is the release date officially set? It comes out on January 30th, but it's available for pre-orders now. So people can go wherever they get their book, whether it be Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, they can pre-order it. And I encourage people um, if they're listening to this before the book comes out on January 30th to request the book at their local bookstore and at their library so that they stock this book up because it's a reference book that I think is helpful for people. So it's out there for pre-orders. And I'll say if somebody goes to my publisher's website, which is Barrett Kohler, and they order it, there's a chance that it may arrive before January 30th. Ooh, that's exciting. I also recommend like bring it to your book clubs, bring it to your, your places of worship, bring it, you know, get groups to, to go through it. Cause I, I haven't been through all of it yet. Um, and I feel like it's going to bring up some feelings for people who are reading it. And it would, as I think you actually recommend doing this, like do it in community so that you have white, white people community so that you have other white people to kind of. Right. And I, and I have a chapter that tries to give people guidelines when they are having these conversations. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Maybe it's like, it's in the last part, part seven. So maybe it's like race rule number 28 or 29 or something that um, gives people some best practices on how to have these conversations. And to also be mindful of like, when they are having these conversations, like, are they tokenizing a person of color by inviting them and expecting them to like carry the load for the conversation? So I think it's beneficial for white people to sometimes have these conversations amongst white people. Like they can read the book and then get together with their church, synagogue, mosque, wherever, um, their school, their workplace, uh, community organizations, wherever, and then have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so perfect for that. Cause it's so it's, what did you say for lazy readers? Is that what you said? Yes. It's for lazy readers <laughs> and then, and then have it for themselves. Right. When they're like, you know, oh crap, this, you know, this thing has just popped off around taking a knee, a conversation about it. Like, let me go to that chapter or voting rights. They keep trying to ban voting. Let me read the chapter on that. So it's great for groups and it's also great for individuals. Wonderful. Uh, how can people, in addition to getting the book, how can people find you and pick up what you're putting down? Well, they can go to my website, FatimaGilliam.com. So it's F-A-T-I-M-A-H-G-I-L-L-I-A-M.com. And if they can't remember how to spell that, they can just Google race rules, what your black friend won't tell, won't tell you. They'll find my name and then they can go to my website for that. Perfect. Perfect. And we will have all this in the show notes as well. And you're on social media too? I am. I am. Um, I'm most active, honestly, like on LinkedIn you know, is where I am, but I also um, have an Instagram profile. So it's like Fatima underscore Gilliam for Instagram. And then it's Fatima, you know, at Fatima Gilliam for Twitter slash X. Okay. Yeah. We had a whole conversation about that pre-recording, <laughs> pre-recording. So if you're um, you know, we, we, <laughs> social media does is what it is. And, and we, we work within its, within its perimeter sometimes. Um, and, oh, if I could say one last thing, I also encourage people, if they do want to reach out, I encourage them to reach out and invite me to come speak, mm -hmm. you know, come speak for their, 
with their organization or their company and, and, and invite me to come in and be a speaker because I can talk about aspects of the book. And for organizations, my first race rule, my bedrock race rule, I think is really helpful because whereas the other rules are like topic specific, you know, whether it be black fishing or tokenism, um, the bedrock race rule is a universal three-step approach to how to make a better choice, no matter the issue, like what should I do? What should I not do? They can use that rule to make decisions. So I encourage people to invite me to come talk about it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, well, thank you again, Fatima, for being here and for, thank for you for having me, your incredible yeah. book and, and your, you know, life experience that you have brought, uh, to this interview. It's, it was really, um, a pleasure to chat with you. Pleasure to chat with you too. Thank you so much. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.